We've just read the content of our text words today from Leviticus chapter 2 and chapter 6 concerning the grain offering. Let's look to the Lord once again in prayer and ask for his help in the preaching. Our Father in heaven, we praise and adore and glorify and magnify you. We confess you as our God, and we praise and thank you that you've made us your people. You've justified us and adopted us in Christ, given us the very spirit of Christ, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We know that it is your will that we as your people, that all of us will persevere to glory, and that you will preserve us. We know that it's your will to use the means of grace of preaching of your word to do this, And we acknowledge to you that apart from the help of your spirit in this, that all our listening and all of my preaching is in vain apart from your gracious work and help in us in this hour. We pray, O God, for the help of your spirit to the praise of Christ and to the help and edification of your people. Now we pray in the salvation of sinners in Jesus' name. Amen. The grain offering that we've just read of is about thanksgiving. It's about giving back to God who's given you all things, giving back in thanksgiving to Him, to God who's given you all that you are and all that you have. You may know something of the story of the first thanksgiving, what's come to be known as the first thanksgiving in America in 1621. You may have heard how that the pilgrims landed there in Plymouth Colony, started a colony in Plymouth, which is modern-day Massachusetts. During that first winter, they landed in 1620, and there were 102 pilgrims who came over on the Mayflower. Forty-five of them died during that first winter, partly from lack of food, partly from disease, partly from exposure to the harsh elements. What What you may not have heard about is that during that time... The Wampanoag tribe, American Indian tribe that lived in that area, befriended them, and especially Massasoit, one of their most influential chiefs, they befriended the pilgrims, they gave them food, they showed them how to cultivate the ground in that climate and grow their own crops, and they were able to survive, and then that coming harvest time of the next year, the pilgrims wanted to have a three-day Thanksgiving feast to glorify God and to thank God for His provision and giving them these crops and for sustaining their lives. And at that first Thanksgiving, Massasoit and 90 Wampanoag people came and they feasted with the pilgrims and they themselves contributed five freshly killed deer. But long before the pilgrims ever arrived, the Wampanoag people viewed it in such a way that when they received crops from the ground, when they received food from going and hunting and fishing, they viewed these things as good gifts from the Creator, and they knew, having never read a Bible, having never been taught the law of this grain offering, they still knew by the light of nature that everything that came to them was given them by the Creator, and the way they viewed it was that they needed to share it with others. That's why they shared, part of the reason they shared it with the pilgrims. They needed to give thanksgiving to the Creator for it. And in this, they were acknowledging that everything they have was given 
to give back, to give in thanksgiving. Well, this is the spirit of this law of the grain offering. It is a thanksgiving to God. And as New Covenant believers, we're called to give our entire life as a continual thanksgiving offering, grain offering to God. And scripture tells us this in Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. After the apostle has expounded upon the blood sacrifice of Christ and his forgiveness of our sins, he then uses the same language in the Greek that the Septuagint uses here in Leviticus describing the grain offering. He's using this analogy of the grain offering and he says, Therefore let us by him continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. As new covenant believers, we're instructed in this grain offering as to how we are to live and worship. Now this grain offering was the people's response after the burnt offering. Remember, the blood was shed for the atonement of their sins. The offering was burned up. That animal was burned up in their place. They deserve to die. The animal dies for them, pointing ahead to Christ who dies for sinners. And then in response to that, there's this grain offering of thanksgiving to God and devotion to Him. In the burnt offering, Christ gave all that He'd been given in His incarnation. And that's why we're saved. We wouldn't be saved if Christ had not given Himself for us. And now He calls us as Christians to give ourselves back to Him. And Paul, remember, tells us this after laying out all that rich theology in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans and then He's been building up to this the whole time. In Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The grain offering teaches us that in His humanity, or, or in His incarnation, according to His humanity... Everything that Christ had was a gift from God for Him to give back. He was given it to give back. And it's the same for us who are in Christ. All you have, even your own body, your own life, and all your possessions, it's all given by God for you give back for His glory. And this is our theme today, simply this, given To give back. And we'll see in this grain offering, as I seek to summarize all the main teachings of these two passages, we'll see five things that we've been given. Five things that Christ was given in His incarnation according to His humanity and that we've been given, that Christ gave back and that we are to give back and how we are to do that. And the first of these is Christ's body and yours were given to give back. In verse 1, we read that when anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. 
this fine flour was made into bread. And we don't have to think very hard to, to know what this bread signifies and points us forward to in its fulfillment under the new covenant. We know that Christ himself refers to his body as bread. We'll read these words of institution in a little while in the Lord's Supper where our Lord Jesus said, as Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This fine flour made into bread signifies the very body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken for us. And it signifies us in Christ. He is our head and we are His body as His church. And we find this also in the New Covenant Scriptures. One place is 1 Corinthians 10.17 where the Apostle says, For we though many, speaking of the members of the church, we though many are one bread. And one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Christ's body was given in his incarnation for suffering and death. He gave it up. He gave up his own body, offered up himself, his body which is broken for us. He gave it back for suffering and death for our salvation And just like we read that this grain should be beaten, we read in the New Testament where our Lord Jesus Christ was beaten for our transgressions. In Luke 22, 63, now the men who held Jesus mocked Him and beat Him. We're familiar with Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Just like that grain was broken and crushed, refined into flour, Our Lord gave His very own body to be crushed for us at the cross. And it's like something I saw in India years ago where, just like in these ancient times that we read of in the Bible, still there, they threshed the grain in the same way. And there was a threshing floor just outside of the window where I was staying. And the people would bring the grain and lay it out there. And they would take a tool that looked like a rake and they would beat and beat and beat that grain to to pulverize it and to refine it and then eventually to make it into bread. You can see our Lord Jesus as there He goes to the cross to offer up Himself for us, to offer His own body as a sacrifice, being beaten and His body broken broken open for us, the beating that we deserved and He took for us under the wrath of God. Just as much as we read, as it implies in this text, That this grain was ground into flour. He was ground for us there at the cross as we read in Isaiah 53.10 that it pleased the Lord to crush him. As we read of this flour being cooked, it could be cooked in an oven or a pan that is a griddle, a flat pan, or it could be cooked in a covered pan like 
a deeper dish. It could be cooked in one of those three different ways. We read of the fire that the grain was roasted with. We read of the fire in this oven, the fire under the pan, the fire under the covered pan. This points us ahead to the humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And his, his humiliation didn't start at the cross. Yes, that's where it culminated. But as we have it in our Baptist catechism, there were several different phases to Christ's humiliation. You could think of it when this bread here in the grain offering is cooked in the oven. Christ's humiliation consisted in His being born in that in a low condition. From the very moment He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, our Lord Jesus began His humiliation. And all through His life, just like it speaks not only of that baked in the oven, but that cooked on the griddle, He was made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life. And all through His life, He suffered in our place until the culmination of it. And you think about this covered pan and how there in those three hours of darkness at the cross, as that great transaction happened between our Lord Jesus Christ and the just God of glory, that the culmination of His humiliation was the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. This points us to His sufferings and death. And because of His sufferings and death, And only because of that, we as His people will live with Him in glory forever. And we'll never experience the beating of the punitive justice of God that we deserve for our sins. Yes, His fatherly chastisement, but never the full penalty that we deserve for sin. And because of this, dear believer, I exhort you to expect and to endure Suffering, expect it. Expect death. As the Apostle tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Paul says, I die daily. As we follow our Lord in His sufferings. This grain offering signifies the body of Christ in suffering and death, but also in His supply. His supply for us. Just like these priests lived off of the eating of the remainders of this grain offering, so we live upon Christ, His life-giving supply. We see this as He mentions the first fruit offerings. They were to bring the first fruits, the first and best of the crop as thanksgiving to God. And explicitly in the New Testament, the apostle likens these first fruits to the resurrection of Christ and to Christ himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is his life-giving supply for us, raised for our justification It's a life-sustaining supply, as Jesus tells us in John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And out of the overflow of this, as we have feasted upon Christ as our bread, as we have been brought to spiritual life, and we will be brought to eternal, final glory because of His resurrection, as the firstfruits, Because of this, God calls us 
to give to others in need, to give financially, to give of our labors, of our gifts, of our time. And that's exactly what the apostle is arguing in 2 Corinthians 8. He is asking and he is exhorting the Corinthians to give financially and he bases it on this For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. The humiliation and suffering of Christ teaches us as God's people to give and to help one another. His body and yours are given to give back, not only in His suffering and death, in His supply, but in His supreme dignity. They were to give their best in this grain offering. We read in verse 1 where it was to be made of fine flour. It wasn't mixed with any bran. It was fully refined. And also it tells us that it was to be of the first fruits. Not the leftovers, but when they bring that first fruit offering, it's the first and best of their crop. And this reminds us that in Christ, God gave us His best. And that's how Paul reasons with us in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not freely with Him also give us all things? He's reasoning from the greater to the lesser. If God has already given you His very best and given you His own Son... Don't you know God will give you anything lesser that you need? John Gill put it this way, that this fine flower of the grain offering points to Christ in the dignity of His person, in His superiority over angels and men, in His being the chief and the chosen of 10,000, the chiefest of 10,000, and in the purity of His human nature which was free from the brand of our original sinful corruption. And it speaks of the spotlessness, the perfect righteousness of His sacrifice. And because of this, we will, every one of us as Christians, you will, dear Christian, you will attain to this sinlessly righteous dignity of Christ. Right now, you are mixed with the original brand of corruption. You are mixed with sin, and all of it, even our best works are mixed with sin. But one day, you will be even as He is, John tells us. You'll be like Him, for you'll see Him as He is. And because of this, God calls us, as He's calling the Jewish people to give their best back to God in the grain offering, God calls you to give your best back to Him. As we read in Hebrews 13, offering up the sacrifices of praise to God and giving to others, forgetting not to share with others. This is the sacrifice spiritually that we offer. And in this I exhort you, give your best to God, dear Christian. Oh, dear young people, let me exhort you. Children here, you who are in your teens, you who are in your now your early to mid-twenties and you have so much of your life ahead of you, oh, give your best years to God. Oh, look at the 
great gift that He gave you in giving His own Son. He gave you His best. He calls you to live for His glory. Don't you think Him worthy of that? Talk to any Christian here who was saved later in life. And yes, we know it's in God's providence, and God had a good purpose for us in allowing us to be saved later on in life. But you talk to any Christian in that condition, and they'll tell you, I wish that I would have come to Christ so many years before I did. I wish I would have given my best years to Him instead of wasting them in sin or spending them up upon my own self-centered indulgences. Give your best years to Christ. Give them back to God for His glory. To all of us as Christians, I exhort you, as we read in Philippians 4.18, give the best of your finances back to God. Paul said about the gift from the Philippians, the financial gift that they sent through Epaphroditus, that it was a sweet-smelling aroma before God, an acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to God. I exhort you to give the best of your labors, the best of your mental abilities, the best of your physical abilities. God has given you all these things for a gift, not to spend up, not to hog up on your own self-centered pursuits, but to give back to God in worshiping and living for Him and giving to His people. And every one of us will be held accountable Depending on what God has given us, God's not requiring you to give back what He's not given you. He's requiring you to give what you have been given. And I'll never forget years ago going to the Special Needs Olympics at at Upward Middle School in Hendersonville, North Carolina, where my younger brother attended. And seeing all those special needs students coming out on the field, they were so happy. They were so happy to be there. They were giving it everything they had. They were overjoyed to compete. And some of them had to be pushed in a wheelchair through the race. Some of them could, could go on their own, but they were slower. And all kinds of different limited capacities, mental limitations, physical limitations. But they were giving it everything they had. And the thought just occurred to me as I was about to go on a preaching tour right after that. I just thought, God has given me greater opportunities, greater mental abilities, greater physical capabilities than many of these young people, than even my younger brother. And I'll give an answer to God for that. As every one of us give an account of ourselves to God, I'll give an account. Did I use it with all my heart for the glory of God? Or did I keep it for my own selfish pursuits? God calls us to give it all back to Him for His glory. This is what Paul is speaking of in Romans 12, to give our bodies a living sacrifice unto God. So Christ's body and yours are given to give back. Christ's anointing and yours are given to give back. In verse 1 he says that this offering shall be of fine flour and he shall pour oil on it. This oil signifies the anointing of Christ 
with the Holy Spirit. And we know how that the Spirit came down upon Christ at His baptism. And how that it was, it was for our salvation that He was anointed in His public ministry by the Spirit. And He was given the Spirit without measure, John tells us in John 3. And then in Hebrews 9, it was, it was by the Spirit that Christ offered Himself up for us. And as a result, forever by the Spirit and Spirit and truth, we'll worship God together because Christ received the Spirit without measure and offered Himself up by the power of the Spirit. And now as believers, it's not just that Christ has been anointed of the Holy Spirit, but So are we, and at the day of Pentecost, Christ, from the right hand of the Father in heaven, poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit upon His church. And in doing this, God has given us His Spirit, not just for ourselves, not merely for our own comfort and our own enjoyment. Yes, that is part of it. But He is given so that we may give back praise to God and that we may give help and service to others. You've been given the Holy Spirit so that you can give praise and prayer to God. Galatians 4 tells us, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're given the Holy Spirit so that you can give toward your fellow man. Ephesians 5.18 that we all are familiar with. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The rest of that passage is be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual, spiritual songs, etc. And it's talking about our life in community together as Christians, edifying one another, living in love and unity with one another. God doesn't give us His Spirit so we can have an enjoyable or a comforting Christian life only. Yes, that is part of it. It is so we can offer up our prayers to God by the Spirit, commune with God, and give to others. We see example of this in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 1.8, We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, for our trouble which came to us in Asia, for we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired of life itself. Imagine that, Apostle Paul despairing of life itself. He tells them in chapter 7, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. You know what Paul says about that when he was in that condition? He said, nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the comforter. But God, the Holy Spirit, uses fellow Christians to comfort one another. You have been gifted the Spirit, and part of the purpose is for you to comfort one another. And I know of of personal accounts that I could tell you here now 
of people in this congregation who have seen others in need, seen others struggling and, and reached out to them and you'll know, never know what it meant. You'll never know how God used you to strengthen one another. Keep doing this. Christ's anointing and yours are given to give back. Christ's priesthood and yours are given to give back. This grain offering was to be offered with frankincense, we read in verse 1, and we also read that it's a sweet aroma to God, that, that frankincense signifying the satisfaction and intercession of Christ. As we read in Ephesians 5, that Christ's death on the cross is a sweet aroma to God. As Christ acts as our priest and mediator, covering our sins, interceding and representing us to the Father. Instead of the stench of our sins, it's the sweet smell, the sweet fragrance of Christ. And even in His cradle, the shadow of the cross was looming over Him as we read in Matthew 2 when the three wise men brought gifts to Christ. One of them was frankincense. Even as a baby, He was looking ahead. He, he was on that trajectory to the cross where He would offer Himself up both as the priest and sacrifice for our sins. And because of His priesthood, His satisfaction and intercession for you, dear Christian, your praise and your prayers are accepted by God. When you pray, if it was left to you, if you considered in yourself your own sinfulness and my own sinfulness, your prayers would never make it above the roof of your mouth. They're unacceptable to God because we're sinful. But oh, in Christ, even the weakest of your prayers, even the frailest of your prayers, sometimes when you can only groan, you don't even have words, that prayer sends to God as a sweet-smelling aroma, like incense, like frankincense. Our praise this morning, even if we give it our best and we worship God with all our hearts, there's still enough sin mingled with our praise that God would justly send us to hell right now if we got what we deserve. But we worship God in Christ. Therefore, even our weak praises and our songs and our prayers and our preaching and listening to the Word, even if in all of our sinful weaknesses and flaws, God receives it as a sweet savor. He's pleased with it. And one day you yourself, dear Christian... Not only your prayers, not only your praise ascend up to God like this frankincense, but you yourself will ascend up to God to live with Him in glory and you'll not have to sneak up, you'll not have to work up the courage to enter into the gates of glory. No, you'll, you'll be overwhelmed with the assurance and the joy that God is pleased with you in Christ and He receives you with open arms. And this reminds us, this priesthood of Christ reminds us of our own priesthood. Every one of you that are in Christ are priests. Remember 1 Peter 2, 5, where the apostle tells us, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a holy priesthood. He tells us in verse 9, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. In Christ, 
Our praise and our prayers are pleasing and acceptable to God. And so, dear saints, praise God. Give praise to God. It's given to you to be able to praise God. Now give it back and praise God with all your heart. God receives your prayers like that sweet aroma of that frankincense. So pray, dear Christian. Pray especially for others as the priest would go in and represent others praying to God on behalf of those who couldn't pray for themselves. Pray for others and may it be as it was as George Whitfield said. He asked, can you blame me for weeping over you? He was preaching to unconverted sinners and Whitfield said, you blame me for weeping, but how can I help it when you'll not weep for yourselves? Though your immortal souls are on the verge of destruction, and for all you know, you're hearing your last sermon and may never have opportunity to have Christ offered to you again. Oh, God help us as His people to exercise our priestly privileges and responsibility to pray for those who will not pray for themselves. Christ's priesthood and yours were given to give back. Fourthly, Christ's covenant and yours were given to give back. In verse 9 we read where this grain offering is a memorial before God. There's a memorial portion This reminds us, and as we partake of the Lord's Supper in a little while, this reminds us that in the memorial of the Lord's Supper, as we remember Christ's death, as Christ told us, do this in remembrance of me. As we remember Christ's death and the benefits of it, and we're comforted by that, you just remember, you're not the only one remembering the covenant of grace You're not the only one remembering the new covenants with its benefits. I will pardon their iniquities, their sins and iniquities. I will remember no more. God remembers. And Scripture speaks several times of God remembering His covenant. Now this is applying human concepts, human language and behavior to God. God doesn't forget. He doesn't need to remember literally. We know that. But it is to comfort our hearts. It is speaking truth to us about God that He'll never forget His covenant. He'll never forget the once for all offering of Christ on your behalf, dear Christian. And He remembers. And He only remembers that toward you and He doesn't remember your sins. They're sins and iniquities. I'll remember no more. The salt in this grain offering speaks of this covenant, of God's covenant righteousness and faithfulness. Salt was an ancient preservative, and we read in Leviticus 2.13, Every offering of your grain offering shall be seasoned with salt, and you shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Salt was an ancient preservative. It signifies the lastingness of God's covenant commitment. It's not going to spoil. It's not going to perish. It's going to endure. And all of God's covenant commitments, God kept and was faithful all the way to bring Christ into the world until everything was fulfilled in Him. And so much more now in the new covenant 
that's a better covenant than this old covenant that they were under. The better mediator, a better sacrifice. So much more now, God is faithful to his covenant and to his promises. And he's faithful to you, dear Christian. And this reminds us as believers, as this is a memorial for us, that we are to remember God's covenant. It's, it's not just that God remembers and keeps the covenant. We are to remember. And think of this as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Yes, as a means of grace, but also as a memorial. That we are to remember, just as this Jewish offerer would remember in the grain offering, all I have is from God. And as we partake and we worship God in the receiving of the Lord's Supper, remember that all you have by common grace, that is the natural blessings of life, and especially all you have in the grace of God in Christ in salvation, all of it is from God. And without Him, you would have nothing Remember this. It's not only our responsibility to remember, but to be a remembrancer to God. Kings in the old days had a man in their court that they called a remembrancer. And he, his duty was to, to know the laws and the decrees of the king, the commitment and promises of the king, and to remind him and to bring before the king the remembrancer. God delights for you, dear Christian, to remind him in prayer, not that he forgets, but for you to pray back the promises that he's given and to take confidence in them. And also to remind others and to tell others, to bring others to hear the preaching of this new covenant message of the gospel. And to return unto God as believers, the faithfulness as this salt signifies, return faithfulness to God who has given such grace and faithfulness to you. Fifthly, and finally, Christ's purity and yours are given to give back, given for the service of God and others. We see the purity of this grain offering in its consumption. We read in chapter 2, verses 3 and 10, that it's only to be eaten by a holy people. Only the priests could eat it. We saw in chapter 6 and verse 18 that it could only be eaten in a holy place. So it could only be eaten by a holy people in a holy place. And this reminds us that the only one who will benefit from Christ as your bread, as your spiritual bread, are you whom He has made holy by His burnt offering, His cross work. Until you come through Christ, come to Christ, come to God through Him as your offering, your sacrifice, you'll never taste of Him as your bread, but He invites you to come, to have your sins forgiven, and then to, for the rest of your life, to eternity, enjoy Christ as your spiritual bread. It was pure in its composition. In verse 11, we read, 
No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven or any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. This is a pure bread. It was free of leaven like, like yeast, something that makes it ferment. Leaven throughout Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, often speaks of the spreading influence of sinful corruption. And we remember that there's no leaven of sin in Christ who is perfectly sinless, as Peter told us in 1 Peter 2.22, that he did no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And in light of this, the purity of our Lord Jesus Christ and His work in us to purify us in sanctification. God calls us to give back heart purity. As Jesus tells us that leaven signifies the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in Luke 12.1. God calls us to give back doctrinal purity and to strive to maintain the purity of the true Christian doctrine. As Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians 5.9, that a little leaven, leaven of false doctrine, he's speaking of there, a little bit leavens the whole lump or the whole batch of dough. God calls us to give back church purity and as a church, as Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5.8, Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is why we should maintain church discipline and holiness as a congregation. It's because of the purity of Christ. The purity He's called us to. We're to give back doxological purity or purity in worship as Jesus told us that they that worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And this honey here, that the offering is not to be with honey. We know from Proverbs 15, 6, or 25, 16 that honey signifies Something that could be good in itself, but we've given an indulgence, a self-centered indulgence to the sensual appetites of the flesh. And that's why Proverbs 25.16 tells us, Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. There's, no, there, there's not to be in our living and specifically here in our worship a being given over to sensual appetites. This is part of the reason our, our worship services are not like a rock concert. This is part of the reason that we don't send out surveys and ask people, what do you like? What is your taste and preference? And then we'll tailor our whole worship time to that. No, we seek by the grace of God rather than offering our sacrifices of praise with honey of self-indulgence. We seek to offer them according to the teaching of God's Word. And our whole life is to be this way. There's no honey of self-indulgence in the offering of Christ as he told us in John 8 29 and he's the only man who could ever say this as he could say of the father I do always the things that please him 
And as our Lord Jesus was willing to experience the most extreme and excruciating sufferings in his, his flesh, giving up all earthly comforts there as he was going to the cross and as he prayed in the garden, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There was no honey of self-indulgent giving over to sensual pleasures in Christ. He denied himself for our salvation. And now he calls us as his people to live and worship in a way that's driven by his word and not our own fleshly desires. And now in light of all this, dear Christians, the fact that everything that Christ had in his incarnation according to his humanity was given to give back to God to give for our salvation the fact that you're called to give it all back to God it's given to give back let me remind you of the great sin of ungratefulness and unthankfulness when we don't give back to God if I were to name to you various sins, okay, you got, you got sodomy, you've got murder, you got unthankfulness. Which one? Oh, that doesn't, unthankfulness doesn't belong in that list, does it? That's, that's not near as serious as sodomy, is it? Well, when Paul is showing in Romans 1 that downward spiral of the sodomites, how they went worse and worse, down and down in sin until they're given over to a reprobate mind, one of the things he says there, neither were they thankful unthankfulness is reckoned right along the sin, side the sin of sodomy there. It's an extremely dangerous root sin. Paul reckons it in 2 Timothy 3.2 among the sins of the end times apostasy. He says that one mark of them is that they will be unthankful. And listen at the list that it comes in. He says in 2 Timothy 3.2, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedience to parents, unthankful, unholy. It's a serious sin. And may God expose it in us so that we may seek forgiveness in Christ and repent, live unto righteousness. First, dear congregation here at Heritage, I want to praise God and express my deep gratitude for you for your thankfulness to God manifest in your giving to God and others. During these past several years that we've been with you and we've lived in church life here with you, it's been some of the most encouraging, instructive, convicting time that I've ever spent seeing how you love one another. It's instructed me, it's convicted me, it's caused me to want to grow but do you think there's room for us to grow in our thankfulness? The most thankful of you here, you'd say, yes, oh yes, I've got so far to go. And I want to help you go further, dear saints. I want to go further. Let me ask you a few questions to, to know if you're guilty of the sin of unthankfulness. There are three basic ways you can tell if you're being unthankful. The first one is... When you don't repay the gift that you've received. 
Now, we might say, well, that sounds like a work salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is God has freely given us salvation in Christ. Now we owe him thanksgiving and praise. We owe him our entire selves. Not to be saved, but because he has saved us. We do it in gratitude. That's what we read in Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifices of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, the giving of thanks to his name. Now, what are some ways that we don't repay the gift received? Well, think about this. God gave us his son, and in giving us his son, he gave us his best. And now we ought to give him our best. But how many times do we give him our second best? Our leftovers rather than first fruits. He gave us, Christ gave us his work. And he calls us to wholehearted work. As Titus 2.14 tells us that he's, he, he gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed. And purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for good works. Christ worked and earned our salvation. He calls upon us. To work for His glory out of the overflow of His grace. And to do this wholeheartedly. But how many times do we render half-hearted work? He paid all the payment for our sins. The eternal debt we owed. He calls us to give back joyful and cheerful and generous giving. But what do we do so often? We don't give as much as we possibly can, like Paul exhorted the Corinthians and praised the Macedonians for doing. Rather, we give as little as we can. Oh, what a shame. He gave us free salvation. God gave us His salvation in Christ, and He he calls us to wholehearted praise, to repay Him with wholehearted praise. But how often do we render Half-hearted praise. How often do we pray the words and just go through without even thinking? How often do we sing the songs and our, our mind is checked out and somewhere else, somewhere else, oh dear saints of God. Christ did all these things perfectly in our place. This giving, this worship of God, these prayers. Let us repent where we have not given back to God. And oh, let us give to God. Your sacrifice is pleasing. It's acceptable to God in Christ. Give it all back. A second way that we know that we're unthankful is when we find fault with the gift received. Numbers 11, the Jews in the wilderness where they were going to starve, they were scared to death, they cried out to God, God sent them manna, angels food, sweet bread from heaven, and what do they do? They complain. That's unthankfulness. But how many times God has, God has given us such gifts, one of them is the preached word, the main means of grace. When you get to glory and you look back, The main reason, according to the means of grace, the main way that God will have preserved you to eternal glory was by the preached word you sat under. That's a gift. And how are we to receive it? How are we to give back? By wholehearted listening and obedience to the word. And yet how many times do we give complaint about the weakness of the preacher, the weakness of the sermon? 
We give careless distraction where we're sitting there thinking about something else. What if I told you, if you could name the main points of my sermon, I I ask my kids this, I ask them, and I encourage you to do this, parents, after services, when you go home, rehearse and ask your kids and get them to listen and to rehearse back the sermon to you. But what if I told you if you could name every point of my sermon, you'd you'd get a billion dollars for it. Do you think you'd be listening? You're receiving something worth more than a billion dollars, the word of God that's worth thousands, more than thousands of gold and silver, the psalmist said. Oh, how we ought to hear, how we ought to bear with the weaknesses of the minister. And do this in thanksgiving to God rather than complaint. We'll receive the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. Oh, what a gift from God. And how do we give back to God in this? By a wholehearted and diligent receiving of it. But how many times do we sit there? And I'm ashamed to say I I know for a fact that some of us sit there and entertain ourselves in other ways while the elements are being passed. I'm not talking about visitors or children. There's some excuse, but I mean members here of our dear beloved congregation. What a shame. I'm so ashamed of that. But you know what I'm even more ashamed of? I'm ashamed of my own sinful self because I've got to confess to you there have been times when God has given us such means of grace and the Lord's Supper and there I sit with my mind wondering. Thinking about last week's cares. Thinking about next week's cares. But oh, by the grace of God, dear Christians, let us give back attention and joyful reception to God who has given us such great gifts. Another sign of unthankfulness is, and this is the worst, when you don't notice or acknowledge the gift. This is impossible for Christians, as we were reminded in the Heidelberg Catechism, that it's impossible for us not to render fruits of gratitude to God. And Christ says that all those who are saved, will will bear fruit, will bring forth fruit. So I'm talking now to you mainly unconverted, you who live in sin and love your sins. Do you realize that you never in your life, you, you have never once given true thanksgiving to God? God's given you everything you have, every breath, every meal, every hour of every day, of every year, and yet not one time have you truly Give thanksgiving to God because you haven't done it in faith in Christ. Oh, what a tragedy. It's like when Jesus came and it tells us in John 1 that he came unto his own and his own received him not. There's the greatest gift you could ever imagine. God's own son, his very best, offered to you in the gospel. And yet you haven't acknowledged or received. But oh, receive him today. May God open your eyes. May it be as John also tells us that as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God. God has offered to you this great gift of Christ. Oh, receive him. Turn from your thanklessness, your unthankfulness and receive him now. And to all you dear Christians, remember in his incarnation and according to his humanity, Christ gave himself for you. He gave everything he had. 
Now give your all to him. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you the gravity and the inexcusableness of every sin of unthankfulness that we've committed against you. We confess it to you. We confess that even in our greatest thankfulness, it's mingled with sin, and we've never been thankful to the degree we should, proportionate to the gift you have given us. We confess this, and we ask for your forgiveness, and we pray by the grace of your Spirit, O God, help us to die to this sin and live unto gratitude to you. Help us not to withhold to ourselves, but out of the overflow of your grace, may you cause us to be more free and more joyful and are giving to you and others in every way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.